Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bible to Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to just show you some pictures. Because of the nature of the text that we have this morning, this, this incredibly beautiful text this morning, I'm like, okay, well, how, how can I begin this? You know, how can I try and illustrate the, the, the beauty of this text? So I, I just went on my web browser and I said, okay, well, what are some the top things in creation? What are the top, most beautiful things in creation? And, and then just a bunch of pictures came up. And I just want to walk through a couple of with them. And, and so here's the first one. This is Pulpit Rock, Norway. This is about 2,000 feet in the air. And this is an 82 by 80 foot, this little precipice that you can walk up and be a part of. And, and this is a part of creation in Norway. Absolutely beautiful. Second picture. This is six monasteries in Greece. Now, you can't see all six of them here, but originally there was about 26 of these monasteries, and they were built sometimes in the 1390s, and basically what happened is the monks got together, and they said, listen, we we want to experience God in a mighty way. We want to experience God in in a powerful way. So these are still six monasteries that you can go up and you can tour and you can look out, and you can see the wonder and the beauty of God's creation. The rest of them have kind of crumbled. One man said this about these monasteries, these monks, they stop at nothing in their everlasting desire to witness the divine light, to experience the presence of God in their hearts. Now, think about that. They want to experience the presence of God in their hearts, so they, so they reached out and did something incredible. Thousands of feet in the air, they, they create these monasteries. You can still tour them. Number three, we're going here, we're actually going to go on a bike trip this summer, and this is Glacier National Park. How many people have been there? Absolutely phenomenal place, right? Beautiful place. So this is Glacier National Park in Montana. This next one, the shimmering shores of Vadu Malta. By the way, I've not been to any of these places except for Glacier National Park. We've kind of been through there. But this is the shimmering shores of Vadu Maldives. And this is described as basically heaven and earth. And this is, these are lights shining in the water at nighttime. And so you have this, this beautiful, this beautiful glow of the water at nighttime. And it's, it's a part of God's creation. Okay, we're going to get a little bit deeper here. Uh, this one next is, this is called a spiral galaxy. Now, I don't know that much. Man, I, I just don't know that much about science and things like this. This is a spiral galaxy. And basically, spiral galaxies consist of a flat, rotating disk containing stars, gas, and dust. And in the central concentration of that, there's stars known as the bulge. And I know that because I just read it, all right? That's what I got off the internet. But this is a, a spiral galaxy, and I'm going to show you another one a little bit later. The Milky Way is a part of this galaxy. And then this is just a a beautiful part of God's creation. And this last one is this. This is a male hummingbird. This is the red-throated hummingbird. And this is just one of many of the incredible parts of creation. As we get closer to spring, as we get closer to things beginning to open up, we're just going to see God's creation, uh, the flowers and the trees, and everything is going to radically change. And we're going to see uh, little creatures like this. Some of you may have a hummingbird. My, my dad has a hummingbird outside and a, a little feeder and all the hummingbirds come up and they're a part of that. And So what I simply wanted to do is I, I wanted to show you some parts of creation that when we look around, maybe we stand on the threshold of Glacier National Park and we look out across that lake that I showed you. Or maybe you stand on the, on the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look out and you go, wow, this is just phenomenally beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful what we have as a part of this world. Maybe you've gone camping and you've, you've turned off all the lights and you look up and all of a sudden you can see the galaxies, you can see the stars, you can see those, and you see all the wonder and the beauty of God's creation. And you look up and you go, wow, that is absolutely phenomenally beautiful. And we should be awestruck by what we see. Connor was right. That rover went up there 
And there's a reason why it went to Mars, because they're, they're looking for answers. And, and I show you all of those pictures, and I remind you of the, the, the wonder and the beauty of our creation because of this. When we read this text this morning, we should just be in awe, absolutely in awe of who God is and this man by the name of Jesus who left the wonder, the glory, the perfection, the unity of heaven to come and walk upon this earth, walk upon this dusty earth, be rejected, die on a cross for its sins, and to display the wonder and the beauty of all God is. We should be absolutely awestruck about what we see all around us. Psalm 19 verse 1 says this, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. We look out and we see the wonder and the beauty of God's creation. We look out and we see all that God has done for us. And the psalmist in Psalm 19 verse 1 says, the heavens declare that glory. I want to take you to the book of Colossians and I want us to look at this and I want us to read this text. I want us to be once again struck by by the, 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 the nature of who God is and the nature of who Jesus is. I'm not going to put the text on the screen. You know, normally I would do that. But I'm not going to put the text on the screen. There's a reason for that. Paul was in a prison in Rome. And this man by the name of Epaphras came and visited him and said, listen, I want, I want to tell you about this church in Colossae, and I want to give you a report of what's going on. And what, what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to write a letter. He's going to pen a letter, and he's going to send it back. He's going to send it back with Tychicus. He's going to send it back some 1,300 miles, and then he's going to take this letter back, and he's going to meet with these people in Colossae and maybe Laodicea and Aeropolis. He's going to take this and he's going to sit around. He's going to say, listen, come over on Tuesday night and I want to read you this letter from Paul. He wrote us a letter. And I want to just read the text this morning and I want you to just listen to it. Now, we're not going to get all of the text this morning that I'm going to read. We're not going to be able to walk through all of it, but we're going to get through most of it. We'll come back next week. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. If you forget everything that I say this morning, I want you to remember this. This is the text. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. We want Jesus to have the supremacy in our lives. Verse 19 says, For God was well pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. So let me just pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather this morning. Father, we thank you for the privilege of knowing Jesus. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. The creator of this world has chosen to reveal himself to us, to come and walk, to tabernacle, to live on this earth, and then to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sin. Father, we thank you for his life. We thank you for the word of God that accurately portrays who you are. And Father, this morning, we simply just want to come and worship you. Father, we want to be reminded of who you are, that you are the supreme one, that you are a creator, a sustainer, that you love us, that you care for us. And no matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how chaotic maybe our life may be, Father, you are still supreme and you still are sovereign over our lives. And this morning, we affirm that. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. 
And everyone said, so there was a guy by the name of Pliny the Younger. There was a Pliny the Elder, and there's a Pliny the Younger. And he wrote a little after the time of the Apostle Paul. So he was a, a Roman guy. He was a Roman educator, philosopher, uh, like a governor kind of person. So he was writing around the time of the Apostle Paul. And, and he wrote these words. He um, was seeking some advice from the emperor Trajan. Trajan, Trajan. He was seeking evidence from this guy about Christians. And this is what he said. He reported about these Christians that they met on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as God. They sang a hymn as Christ is God. Now, isn't that interesting that here you have a Roman educator, a Roman philosopher, writing to the emperor about what he hears and believes these Christians are thinking about in the nature and the person of Jesus. You have these pagans, these non-Christians, giving evidence as to what they believed about Jesus and the fact that he was God. And that what they were doing, they're meeting early in the morning and they're singing, they're alternating, and they're, they're giving worship to this Jesus who was declared as God. Now, I don't know if this, what we have here, is, is some kind of poem. It's a hymn that the earlier, we don't actually know about that. Or, or maybe what Paul is doing, Paul in his own mind is reflecting on the nature and the character of who Jesus is. And he's just kind of bursting out in praise, bursting out in this hymnic fashion on the supremacy of Jesus. But that's what he's going to get at this morning as we look at these verses. If, if someone in Colossae is sitting there and they're wondering about the nature and the character of who this guy Jesus is, Paul has an answer for his. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the supremacy of Jesus. So let's just walk through this. Number one, who is this Jesus? Number one, verse 15, it says that he's, he's ultimately God. Look at verse 15. Speaking of Jesus, it says this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, what's interesting, if you to look at this text, Paul says in, in verse 15, he is. He's, in other words, he's making an affirmation about the nature and the character of who Jesus is. He does it on verse 15, and he, he does the same thing in verse 17. He is, and he does the same thing in verse 18. So we have this, we, we have this passage of Scripture that's a, a direct affirmation of who Jesus is. And in verse 15, he calls him what? He says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Image has the idea of, of, of likeness. You've heard the phrase, she's a spitting image of her mother, or she's a, he's a spitting image of his father. But when, when we say that, what are we saying? Well, he's just like mom, he's just like dad. You know, the apples don't fall too far from the tree. It's just like this person. That's what we understand the image to be. But in Greek philosophy, it goes a little bit deeper, and it has this idea. It means to, to share in the reality of that person. It reveals that it, it may be even, even be the reality so image has the idea of, of sharing in the reality and even being in the reality of that person. So we have a deeper understanding in the Greek context of the nature and the character of who Jesus is in this idea of image. He's revealing something mighty and powerful about who God is. That Jesus is this image of the invisible God. That Jesus possesses the attributes, the nature, the very essence of God himself. Now, if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, you have kind of maybe an expanded understanding of what this might mean and some pretty powerful verses. So let me just read Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. He says this, In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets and many times and in various ways. 
But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And notice how he describes Jesus, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Listen, if you want anyone to know about the nature and the character of who Jesus is, this is a great verse to take him back to. Because this is a beautiful affirmation of who Jesus is and the idea, the concept that he bears the exact representation of, of God. Notice what he says. He's the heir of all things. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the purifier. And by the way, he sits at the right hand and he reigns with our heavenly father at this particular point in time. What the author simply does is he lifts up the nature and the character of Jesus and says he's the exact representation of of God and who he is. He displays the very radiance and the beauty of God. Jesus comes to earth and he reveals who God is and what he would have for our lives. He's the image of God, if you will. He goes on in this verse, Hebrews chapter 1, he says he's the exact representation. This has the idea of an engraving tool, of stamping an engraving on something, maybe on a piece of metal, on a piece of lever. There's an engraving that Jesus comes, and he stamps in this world. Think about raising Jairus' daughter, daughter back from the dead. Imagine him going in and removing everyone else, And Jesus speaking the words, little girl, I tell you, get up. And he raises her back from the dead. Jesus has left his stamp, his stamp of approval all over. That's why we read the Gospels. That's why we look at the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when we look at the the word of God, we see who Jesus is and who's come to reveal himself to be. He's the exact representation, and he touches the human life. He touches our human soul, if you will. The Gospel writer John, in John chapter 1, verse 18, said this, incredibly powerful about the nature of who Jesus is. He says this, no one has ever seen God, but notice what he says, but God, the one and only. What is John doing? He's affirming that Jesus possesses the very attributes, the very essence, the very being of God. But God, the one and only, who was at the Father's right side, has made him known. And the person of Jesus comes and reveals himself to us in a mighty and powerful way. Look at verse 19 of our text, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Notice the writer says, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness. What, all his fullness of what? The essence, the attributes, the being of who God is. I want all of that to reside in the very person of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is affirming here to the people and affirming to us is this, that this is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and he's come to live among us. So Paul is affirming that in the image of God, he bears the very likeness of, of God in the person of Jesus. But he goes on in the second part of this verse, and in verse 15 he says, the firstborn over all creation. Now firstborn can be this. I'm, I'm the firstborn in our family. I'm the, I'm the firstborn male. I'm the firstborn in our family. So it, it has the idea of someone being in, in an order, born first. In the Hamilton family, I, I came first. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of other religions that believe that, well, well, maybe what happened was this, that Jesus 
was actually created, that, that maybe God had relations with Mary, and, and, and maybe that's how Jesus came about. Or, or, or maybe Jesus was actually Michael the archangel. And, and maybe somehow, some way, they, they came together and, and Jesus was actually a created being. He doesn't possess the nature and the essence of who God is. But the idea here of firstborn has the idea of, of prominence, of being supreme, of being the one who is above everything else. Paul, in his, his Jewish mind, is thinking of preeminence. He's thinking about superiority. He's thinking about the supremacy. He's thinking about race. He's thinking about prominence. He's saying, listen, in the unique person of Jesus, as the firstborn, he ranks high above everyone else. He wasn't born. He wasn't created. He possesses the very nature and attributes of God. And Paul would understand this idea of firstborn. He would understand it. Not everyone who was firstborn got the inheritance. Think back to Jacob and Esau. Who was born first? Esau. Jacob got the inheritance. He was labeled, declared as the firstborn because he's going to be supplemented by, by, by God's order, if you will. David was the same way. David wasn't firstborn, but he's declared in Psalm 89, verse 27, that he's the firstborn. Notice what he says. The author in Psalm 89 says this, I will appoint him, David, my firstborn, the most exalted of all the kings. He wasn't the firstborn. God is saying, listen, in the order, in the firstborn order, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give prominence. I'm going to give superiority to this person. And that's ultimately what he's done here. He's elevated the person of Jesus in the image of God, in the idea of firstborn, so that the people at Colossae would know and understand who Jesus is and he's someone to be worshipped. Jesus bears the very image of God. He's the firstborn because he's a prominent one. He's the supreme one. And because of that, we should give him our lives and we should honor him as who he is. So Paul is lifting up the nature and the character of who Jesus is to the people of Colossae. And he continues in verse 16. Not only is Jesus God, but he's our creator. Notice what he says. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. If you go back and you were to print these verses out, and put them on a piece of paper, and circle all of the important words, you would probably circle this phrase, all things. Five times that phrase pops out, all things. And then he talks about all creation, and then he talks about all fullness. In other words, what Paul seems to be doing here is Paul seems to be lifting up the idea of Jesus being the very creator of everything that we see all around us. Everything was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for him. And so Paul, in an incredibly poetic, maybe hymnic type of way, begins to extol on who Jesus is and how we should be responding to him as our creator. You see Jesus as the creator of all things? You worship him as the creator of all things? See, for us not to do that, for us not to worship him for the way that he has been revealed in the Bible means this, that we're giving him less of what he deserves in our lives. And what Paul simply does is lifts Jesus up in the very image of God, the first one, the prominent one, and it's the creator of all things. So, so let me just give you a couple of examples here. Let me try and give you a couple of examples of, of Jesus being our creator. So at the beginning of the sermon, um, I, I showed you a picture of um, that spiral galaxy, right? So this here is the Milky Way galaxy. So I, I tried to get in and I tried to do a little bit of re research on this, and so this is what I found out. Scientists have said that there are 100, approximately 100, to 200 billion galaxies in the universe, okay? 
Each of these galaxies has an average of two to four billion stars, give or take a billion or two. So take 100 to 200 billion and multiply it by two to four billion, and it will give you the total number of stars in the galaxy. Does that overwhelm you? Does it give you a headache? Or does it make you go, wow? One man said this, take a box of salt. So I've got a box of salt. Pour it out. Count all the pieces of salt. Multiply it times 10,000, right? So 10,000 boxes of this salt. And that's how many stars you will have in the Andromeda galaxy. My head just explodes because of who God is and what he's done for us. You know what the Bible says? Psalm 147 says this. He determines the numbers of stars and he calls them each by name. Seriously, he determines the number of stars and he calls them each by name. Shouldn't that overwhelm us? Shouldn't that cause us to be in awe of who Jesus is and what he's done for us? So, uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, it says this. There's a series of questions in Isaiah chapter 40, and, and here's one of the questions in verse 12. It says this, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That little pocket right there, the hollow of his hand. He's measured all of the waters. I can hold maybe a, a teaspoon or two. He's measured the, the waters in the hollows of his hand. Or with the breadth of his hand, he's what? He's marked off the, the heavens. The, this idea of breadth from, from the nose to the end of your arm, that this breadth, that, that's how far he's marked it off. My point in showing and revealing all this to you, does it make you go, wow, this God is incredible. He's mighty and he's powerful and he's supreme. And I should fall at my feet and worship him for who he is and what he's done. Let me give you another picture. I, I showed you a picture of this hummingbird. This is a male red-throated hummingbird. This hummingbird weighs slightly less than a penny, okay? Its heart beats 21 times a second. Its wings can beat 60 to 80 times a second. And it's basically found kind of on the east of the Mississippi and uh, the, the, this the northern area. But what it does is it migrates. In the wintertime, it migrates. And it migrates to Florida, to Mexico, and to Central America. That thing flies over water. I mean, consider that. Think about it. That little hummingbird that weighs less than a penny migrates thousands of miles away from its home, and then it comes back again. Are we in awe of God's creation and who he is and what he's in? And, and that's what I think he's getting here. That's what Paul is going to say. Listen, he's the creator of all things. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and we should fall on our feet, and we should worship him for who he is and what he's done. Verse 16 says this, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. And we haven't even talked about things way beyond my pay grade, electricity, gravity, all of those things, the atmosphere, physics. I don't get all of that stuff. I wonder if at times, because we don't understand some of these things that we tend to put Jesus on the back burner. Well, you know what? I don't understand all that stuff, but I'm just going to kind of live my life. And I'm not going to pursue who he is. So I live my life. Maybe I, I live my life not really in faith. I, I don't live with a sense of creative, creativity for who he is and what he would have us to do. Or, or maybe I'm not living a, a thankful life. I, I, there's not a lot of joy and wonder in my life. I'm kind of just walking through doing things every day normally. 
And I've forgotten the nature and the character of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, and he's come to live with us. And I kind of just, ah, yeah, life's good. Good. Anyone remember the, the cartoon Far Side? I'm going sh- to show you a cartoon. This is the Far Side. Okay, here it is. Wish I'd bought a magazine. I mean, imagine that. Some people think that heaven's just going to be sitting on a, a cloud, maybe playing a, a harp. Is, is that... Is that our understanding of our future? Is that our understanding of God? Is our understanding of, of who Jesus is and what he's... If we lost all of the wonder in our lives about who he is and what he actually wants to do in our lives? The Bible talks about this. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the Spirit of God lives inside of us and he wants us to be creative and he wants us to love him and he wants us to honor him and he wants us to worship him and he wants and needs to be the supremacy of all things that we do. I wonder if at times we've, we've lost this idea of the mystery of who God is. And when we look at God's creation, and when we look at the hummingbird, and we look at all the things, we're reminded of who God is and what Jesus has done in this creation. And he says, by the way, I love you and I care for you. If I created a hummingbird, if I created this world, if I created all of these spiral galaxies, how much more do you think I care about you and love you and want to help you? And how he wants us to step out in faith? Man, this Jesus, he's God, he's a creator. And number three, he's the sustainer of all things. Look at verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What Paul is simply saying is he's affirming this idea that Jesus is before all things. He's important. He's the preeminent one. has the idea, going back to this firstborn, that he finds supremacy in all things. Are we living our lives with this idea that Jesus is the preeminent one? That he needs to be the absolute supreme in my life, in all that I say and all that I do. See, I think that's what Jesus confronted people with when he came to earth. I think that's what Jesus confronted the religious leaders with, this idea that there was something unique, something very, very different about him. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation with the, with the Jewish people. And they don't understand who he is because he keeps making all of these affirmations. And then Jesus simply tells them in John chapter 8, verse 58, before Abraham was born, listen, before Abraham was born, I am. What does that mean? He's basically telling the Jewish people that before the patriarch Abraham even came into existence, I lived, I am. That, that's the affirmation that God gave to Moses about who he was. Jesus is revealing to the Jewish people in John chapter 8, listen, there's something unique about me. I existed before the very foundation of the world when I possessed the nature, the attributes, and the character of who God is and what he's done for me. By the way, in John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer, he's praying And he's praying things like this. I I want to be with you because I was with you before the very creation of the world. And in John chapter 17, he's also praying that I want to be with you with the glory that I had before the very foundation of the world. The pre-existence, the eternal Jesus has come to live and be among us. And this is the Jesus who holds all things together. He's before all things. He created all things. And he holds all things together. Do you think your life is in chaos? Maybe you do. Maybe Jesus is holding it together. Maybe you can't see it. But he wants to do that, and he chooses to do that. So as I was doing some reading here, um, in one of my readings, I came across an illustration. Now, this is from a Christian scientist, and he wrote kind of an analogy. And his his name is is John Polkinghorne, and I'm going to call him John because the last name's too hard. 
So we're just going to call him John. And he uses the following analogy in relation to this idea of Jesus holding all things together. And this is what he says. Imagine that you're in front of a universe-making machine. The machine has a master board with all kinds of knobs. One of the knobs controls gravity. Another knob controls electromagnetism. That's how things hold together, including ourselves, are all hold together. Another knob can determine the speed of creation, how fast you create the universe. Another knob can determine the size of the cosmos and how big the universe is going to be. So in front of you, there's all of these hundreds of knobs, and you can turn and fine-tune these knobs to create life and existence as we know it. But John concludes that there will be only one way to set all of the knobs and create life. The knobs need to be set exactly the way that they are now. And if you mess with one knob, even minutely moving it, you will change and make it impossible for us to live. That is a Christian scientist affirming that in the unique person of Jesus, all of these things hold together. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God created us? Do you believe the cosmos is the the creation of, of, of Jesus and God the Father as they speak this world into existence, the creator of all things. Obviously, it takes an act of faith on both levels, whether I'm going to believe that that's the way the Big Bang or however they want to describe it, or this fact that, that Jesus created it. It's, it's, it's a step of faith for all of us. But where are you going to line up the scriptures? Uh, Colossians chapter 1 affirm the very essence that Jesus is the creator of all things, and he wants us to be reminded of that. We might worship him, we might follow him, and we might seek him. He's holding all things together right now. How many times in the New Testament, that's why I love reading through the, the Gospels, how many times in the New Testament do you see Jesus bringing order out of chaos, calm out of chaos? Remember the song that we, we sang today? It talks about chaos, the storm, chaos of the storm. What does he do? He, he calms it. The chaos of disease, chaos of death the chaos of sin, all this chaos. And Jesus comes, and his unique being, because of his teaching, because of who he is, he brings this idea of calmness in the midst of chaos. Maybe you can think of it this way. How encouraging to know that the eternal God who created us and is sustaining this entire world right now is watching over you. The Bible says he's got the very hairs on your head numbered. Do you believe that? Believe that has it changed the way that you look about who Jesus is and what He's done for us? Is, is Jesus supreme in your life, or is He just He's there on Wednesdays and Sundays? I want to give you an illustration, then I want to draw this to a conclusion. I'm going to show a picture here. This is the Last Supper. Evidently, uh, Leonardo da Vinci created this, and it took him three years to paint. And he wanted this to be his crowning work. But before unveiling it to the public, he decided to show a friend and to get his opinion of uh, what uh, this guy thought about the painting and because he respected this person. And his friend's praise was just unabounded. He said, he said, the cup in Jesus' hand is especially beautiful. Disappointed at once, Da Vinci began to paint out the cup. Astonished, the distinguished friend asked for an explanation. And this is what he said, nothing, Da Vinci explained, must distract from the figure of Christ. So he wiped it out, and he put Jesus' hands down like this. Why? So that Jesus would be the absolute supremacy in that picture. And by the way, 
I've showed you this before. If you go back and look at this and you line up all of the lines from the top and you, you notice where everything is pointing, it's pointing directly to Jesus. Why? Because Leonardo da Vinci didn't want anything to distract from the unique person of who Jesus is and what he would want for our lives. And I, I think that describes what we have here in verse 18 where it talks about in all things that Jesus might be supreme. So let me draw this home. Let me draw four points of application. If Jesus is God, if he is our creator, if he is our sustainer, then we need to respond. And I I think there's four opportunities for us to respond. Let me just walk through them real briefly. Number one, we need to reorder our lives. In chapter 3, verse 8, it talks about, but now. In other words, now that you know and understand who Jesus is, and what he's done, then we need to respond to who he is. So if you're not a Christ follower, if you're an unbeliever, if you're outside of who Jesus is, then what I would suggest is this, that you need to put your faith, you need to repent of your sin, you need to turn to Jesus, and you need to invite him to be a part of your life by faith, trust in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of who Jesus is. That would be the first point, to reorder your life around the unique person of Jesus. But for us who are followers of Christ. My question to you would be this. What is supreme in your life? What is supreme in my life? In other words, if we put something else in our lives above Jesus, that becomes what's supreme. So so can I tell Jesus, yes, you can have this. Yes, you can have this. Yes, you can have this. But no, you can't have this. My thought life, what I watch, what I do, how I respond. I, I think that's what he's asking us here. Is Jesus the supreme one in all areas of our life? If he truly is as the creator God, then do we give him everything about our lives? Is there a supreme? Second thing is this. I think there's a relinquishing of our life. Again, if Jesus is supreme and who he is and what he's done for us, then maybe I need to be careful what I grab onto in what I hang on to. Philippians chapter 2. Let me just read a couple of verses. This is about Jesus, okay? He says this, about Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. What did, what did Jesus do? He came to this earth, and he came and offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. How can I not give the due back to him? as a bondservant of Jesus. I think that's what he's asking us, this. Will we relinquish certain things in our lives and give them to him? If you look at Onesimus, in chapter 4, Onesimus, remember who he is? He's a runaway slave. What does Onesimus have to do? Paul's saying, listen, I want you to go back, go back with this letter, and I want Philemon, the, the employer, I want him to accept you back. In other words, Philemon has to reorder his life, and so does Onesimus. They have to reorder their lives under the umbrella of who Jesus is and go back and look at chapter 4 in those household contexts. It's always relating it back to who Jesus is. We need to reorder our lives. By the way, when you do that, you're going to lose something because lives are messy. You may not get the job because they know you're a Christian. You may not get the financial remuneration because of the the sacrifices that you made. You may not be in a position of status. You may not get any of those things because you have relinquished your rights. 
Where is Paul writing this? Paul is writing this from a very prison cell. But he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus. And he calls all of the other people alongside of him that we are bondservants. So we reorder, we relinquish. Number three, we renew. Let me read Colossians 3 verse 8 says this. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger and rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices. And notice what he says. And you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. What is God doing? God is recreating his image through the person of Jesus in our lives. He's conforming you and I to the very image of Jesus Christ. And you and I, as we take the message out, as we take the message of the life, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that image is being restored into people. And it's being restored into families, and it's being restored into communities. That's the privilege we have. So we reorder our lives. We relinquish our life. We renew our lives because we're being created. Last thing is this. We should be saying, thank you, Lord. Thank you for who you are and what you've done. We should be singing the hallelujah chorus. God, thank you. Over and over, Paul gives thanks in this letter. It's like when he's writing, he's just saying, oh, thank you for this. And I want to say thank you for this. He's just bursting with spontaneous gratefulness to who God is and what he's done. By the way, he's writing in prison. Life has been changed. Okay, one last illustration, then I'm going to be done. Connor mentioned the, the lunar thingy-mabob. That's the technical term, the thingy-mabob. The Land Rover called Perseverance. Interesting. I want to give you this because I thought it was very interesting, and then I'm done. When you watch it land, if you're familiar with it, you watch it land, there's, there's a parachute, right? You can look that up. And on the parachute, they've colored it different colors, orange and white. And the reason for that is because that when that lands and all the patterns that are in it, that they watch it land and they're able to watch how it lands and then learn from the landing based upon the colors and the imprints and all that kind of stuff. They're able to learn. I mean, that how, that, that's how careful they, they are about this landing. But they also did something else. They created a code. They created a code in the top of this. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Thank you, Bill and John. They created a code through all the bars and the colors and all of that. And it took six hours for some really smart people to figure out the code. And this is the part of the code. This is what it says. Dare mighty things. That's from a speech that Teddy Roosevelt gave in 1899. And their purpose in putting that on the top in that code is that they want to dare to do mighty things. That's a hidden code. By the way, there's a bunch of hidden things in there. But that's one of them, dare mighty things. And here's my point. Shouldn't that be true of us who have the Spirit of God living inside of us, who know the Creator? Shouldn't you and I be people who are creative and living with faith and living with thankfulness and living in a way that lives are radically changed? Because we know who Jesus is. And he's come to live inside of us and to change us and transform us in the very image of Christ. Do we dare to do mighty things because of who God is? I thought that was pretty cool. And by the way, it's not a hidden code. It's right here. And it's Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. Lord, I thank you for your creation. Uh, Lord, I also know that, that, that this verse is just jam-packed with so much stuff and 
Father, I pray that you would be able to weed out through your spirit the things that I didn't communicate clearly, the things that I may have missed. But God, the, the essence of who you are is that you have come to live with us, that you're the creator, you're the sustainer, that you love us immensely. And Father, that you want us to trust you with our very lives. Father, I pray that uh, whatever someone is going through this morning, I ask that you'd speak to them. I ask that you would encourage them. I ask that you would help them. Father, to hang on, to persevere. And Father, I pray that we would be people this week who would dare mighty things because of what you've done for us. Father, we have the Spirit of Christ living inside of us. May we live for you this week in Jesus' name. Amen.